Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast. Today you will hear from a very vulnerable, strong woman who has used her very difficult adversity through postnatal depression and burnout and anxiety into a purpose, a pivot, a passion. How she's gone from surviving mental illness herself into passionately campaigning for others so that other people do not have to feel alone in this experience of struggling with anxiety, depression, or trauma. In this episode, we covered a lot of ground. It's a longer than average episode, so I do hope that you will stay to the very end because some really beautiful permissions are shared by Joe Love at the end of this episode, where we touched upon everything from postnatal depression and the hardship of motherhood how it's okay to admit that you're struggling and how saying that you're not coping can be seen as a failure for those of us who are high striving and ambitious. We've also talked about how Jo's ambition actually caused her to be rather unwell in her job as a lawyer. So do stay with us to the end of the episode because this is a really good one. At the end of the episode, I'll also talk a bit more about my way of working with this type of high striving person, sometimes called a type A personality, to help you take some of this pressure off, to be kinder to yourself. And the first step is just to think about when you need a break before you break. So you can download a little freebie worksheet from my website, which is thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. On with the show and do stay with us. So today on the podcast, I've got Jo Love, an award-winning mental health advocate and campaigner who shares her experience of mental illness, including depression, anxiety, and burnout, alongside evidence-based strategies that helped her recover. Jo campaigns both on and offline to let other people know that it's okay not to be okay. Her current campaigns have included hashtag depression wears lippy, and they help to break down the stigma of what the face of mental health looks like as well as running the hugely successful t for pnd events and campaigning to lower the current maternal suicide rate, which is the leading cause of death over the first year after pregnancy, according to Embrace UK Confidential Inquiry into Maternal Deaths. And that's really quite a serious topic. And in this episode, we do cover suicide. So this can be a trigger for you. If you're affected in any way by maternal suicide, either for yourself having suicidal thoughts or knowing someone who's struggling with this, then please turn to the links in the show notes to turn for help in crisis. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Plate podcast, Joe. It's such an honor to have you on to actually get to talk about your passions of mental health awareness and campaigning. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh no, thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm very glad. And I, I know that your story is going to be very meaningful to the people listening, you know, with the vulnerability that you share. 
So let's start with that. Let's start with the diving into the vulnerability of why you're here. It's because you have a painful story to tell. Mm, yes, I. It's it's interesting hearing you say it like that because sometimes your story can just become your story, can't it? And you and it becomes normal to you. And I've said I have in many different forms said my story out loud to on the internet but also into real life audiences and yeah it is um there is a vulnerability there um and it's interesting to reflect on it but yeah my my I suppose it's my mental health journey um and for me I started talking about it I've struggled with my mental health for for many many years but I really started talking about it when I was in the later stages of recovering from my postnatal depression after having my uh, little girl, who is now five. And at the time, I felt, it's very different now, but at the time I felt there weren't many voices out there talking about that juxtaposition between motherhood and mental health. I really felt there was a, I felt the blow of, not nailing motherhood in the way that society expected me to in that this wasn't the most joyful time of my life and this was really hard and also having a mental health condition which has its own stigma both externally from other sources but also internally from my own conditioning of <laughs> of how I felt about it so I really felt the the collision of the two things at a time in my life where you know, mothers are very, very vulnerable. Um, and I think it's something that I was not aware of at the time, really. It really hit me. It hit me with full force. And we can go into a little bit more of my story. But essentially, I became quite unwell. And it lasted for a very long time, a lot longer than I thought that it ever could. And I think actually, it's it's taken a number of years to to fully recover from it. And I think also wellness, I think we're going to touch, we might touch on this at a later stage. But, you know, my mental wellness is an ongoing thing. It is a process and I don't feel fixed by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but in terms of my postnatal depression, yeah, I found myself at rock bottom. I really found myself not wanting to exist, not wanting to be here. You do hear this so much, but if from survivors of suicide or people who have attempted you know people who've attempted that that you feel that people would be better off without you your family would be better off without you and I can understand how alien that must sound to people who haven't been in that position because for me now sitting here today that does feel a very alien and bizarre concept and having had people close to me take their own lives it doesn't <laughs> that it, it doesn't that the knowledge of being in that position doesn't help myself when I'm dealing with with that external position mm. um but it, you really do feel like that I really did feel genuinely that my baby and my husband would be better off without me and it can look from the outside to be the most selfish decision but what it felt like at the time was a selflessness, like I was, I was helping, um, and yeah, I can, I can understand now how, how mm. that was the illness, and that is, that is, 
it's very difficult to to for to 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 understand when you're not even even as myself not even in it anymore Mm. And I can and appreciate that that can be really triggering for a lot of people listening mm. as well. You know, for you both having lived it and having experienced other people committing suicide. So we will put some links in the show notes for getting more support if you've experienced this or if you are worried about yourself or anyone around you. We'll put some crisis information on where you can reach out for support just to mention that from the outset because... This could be a very triggering episode for people who are currently in postnatal depression or any kind of depression for that matter. Mm. Because you're so right is that in that moment, that darkness can feel very much like that is the only solution. Mm. That is the only option. And if anything, it will be the kindest option to those around you. And that's just goes to show how deep that skewed perception goes in depression. It's almost like a funhouse mirror that everything just looks skewed yeah um, so I'm very glad that you, you feel comfortable to share that 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 is how deep the darkness went for you mm. at what point did you notice uh, or at what point did you understand that you were suffering from postnatal depression that's such a good question and I'm really glad that you brought up the resources and you're going to you're going to link out to that because it is really important to to know you're not on your own and it is why I do bring this up and don't mind talking about it because I think suicide can be something that people don't talk about and then becomes Mm. very shameful and very secretive and actually I think it would have helped me at the time to know how normal it is in motherhood particularly the first year how vulnerable you are and I think that would have really helped. So when did you start to understand that Mm. you were suffering from postnatal depression rather than you know, noticing when you're feeling yeah. low, I guess it's the difference between that and seeing actually this is something not right here. These thoughts, these feelings, these body sensations, they're a part of something that isn't my fault. Yeah, that is a really good question and really insightful question because I think that took me a very long time. Um, my little person was about, now it all gets fuzzy because it's a little bit, a little bit long time ago, but she was about eight months old um, Mm. when I went to the GP but I think even going to the GP and even getting my diagnosis even then I don't think it really clicked um, Mm. what that meant but I suppose it was for me what led me to go into the GP was that I was increasingly feeling like I couldn't cope I had had a suicide attempt and even then, see, even then, and this is this is why I bring it up, because even at that point, I didn't think that I was unwell. I had no real idea. I didn't think, oh, I mm-hmm. think this is postnatal depression. I better go to the doctor. What I thought was, this is not normal. I don't think I'm feeling normal, but I think that I'm just not coping and everybody else is coping because I know motherhood is hard. I know this is hard. And I literally said to the doctor, I, and she's a mother, and I'd had quite a lot of interaction with her, which was quite helpful, you know, having the baby jabs and all of the rest of it, the checkups. So I said to her, I know motherhood is hard. I get it. But should it be this hard? And I don't really know what I was expecting her to say, but I was so relieved when we did the what I now know to be the, the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Checklist. And she said, no, no, it shouldn't. Let, let, let me help you. And that was an enormous relief because it made me realise there was something, even though I don't think I connected 
for a lot longer with the diagnosis postnatal depression I still thought I don't know I don't think I took it as seriously as I should have done in my head I thought okay well I'll just have the CBT and I will um, take my medication and then that'll be that and I don't think I realized at that point in time how how much more personally everybody is different but personally I needed to do to feel better so it took me a while is, mm. is the short answer <laughs> Lex we'll come on to that a bit more as well around your ongoing recovery journey because mm. you started by saying that you know there's a difference between kind of recovering from mental illness or having mental health problems to feeling really mentally well mm. and we're going to talk about that as well that I think of it as you know mental health and when mental wellness isn't just an absence of negatives it's not just an absence of depression an absence of anxiety it's a presence of something positive mm. feeling joy feeling connection feeling meaning feeling purpose that we have something that helps us flourish mm. and, you know the fancy terms for this in, re in research is the difference between flourishing and languishing so I think it's important to think of how do we support mothers, not just mothers, but, you know, we're talking about postnatal depression. How do we support mums to not just have an absence of, of postnatal depression, an absence of trauma, an absence of, of anxiety, but also a presence of joy and connection mm. with their baby, feeling proud of what they're doing. It can't just be about the, well, I don't feel shit, so it's all going to be okay. Mm. And for you, you felt beyond shit. I mean, occasionally swear on this podcast, so I'm sorry <laughs> if it offends anyone. But sometimes, you know, the depths of the darkness can't be described in any other way. Mm. For, for you, though, Joe, what do you think? What do you think was the precursor to this? Was there anything that you can see now in hindsight? Because hindsight is a beautiful thing. Mm. Anything you can see in hindsight that led you to become vulnerable to get depression? Yeah. To get postnatal depression? Um, yeah. And th that is another excellent question because it's something that I have thought about a lot. And now with some of the work that I do, because I work in perinatal mental health now, I have learned more about. And there's a whole plethora of reasons and I think it's, it's still very unknown you, you could it's not an, an absolute checklist of if you are this kind of person that kind of person had this experience and that means you are definitely going to have um, postnatal depression but there are a number of factors that I can absolutely see that have that led me <laughs> to finding mm. finding myself in that position one of which was you know a history of mental illness um, a history of depression I also am a type A personality. I've had quite a, I, I was a lawyer for 10 years before having my baby. And I, I, I thought in very black and white terms. So I, I, I sort of approached motherhood in an all or nothing way. I kind of thought that I would be able to read the books, use reason, um, use logic in the way that any parent will tell you is just not, it's just not possible. I have struggled with my whole life perfectionism and my core values that were instilled in me from a very young age as a child to get things right, to be perfect. Found no place in motherhood and it all was like a per almost perfect storm of lots and lots of different factors. I didn't have immediate, other than my partner, I didn't have immediate support around me. It's not that any one of these things mean you are going to have postnatal depression, but I did find that I had a number of factors that all sort of 
came together. And like you say, with hindsight, it meant that it was is semi, it was semi inevitable. And and I also didn't take it. I didn't take my mental health very seriously at that point in time. So I wasn't doing anything, like you say, to help me, help my wellness, help me thrive. You know, it. I was I was completely unprepared mentally uh, for what was about to happen. Mm. And I guess that's you know your work now in coming into perinatal mental health is so important of using that difficult painful journey there's 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 lessons there there's wisdom there from actually so many women tell the same story Mm. of being left without support and feeling like you know if I admit that I'm not coping or I'm saying that this is hard this is supposed to be this hard for someone who is so so so-called type a personality or high striving or overachieving it's a huge thing mm. to say, I'm not coping. Yeah. Or I'm finding this hard. That can feel like an ultimate failure. So no wonder mm. that there's, you know, difficult to to step up to your GP and ask for help. Mm. You know, it's almost impossible task to do. Mm. And I guess when you when you talked about that, of all of these different ingredients, almost like coming together in a chemical reaction, <laughs> it's no wonder that it was like an anxiety cake, bacon in your oven or, you know, a depression cake. Mm. And how powerful it is if we can find those mothers before baby comes that we can help to support them to shield some of that vulnerability to soften to lower the likelihood to lower the risk you know we can't we can't prevent any you know any pnd and anxiety but wouldn't it be great Mm. if we could hold them better you know protect them because if mum is well baby is more likely to be well yeah it's that part of what's driven you into actually retraining from a lawyer into working in mental health now yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was, it's a podcast, but I was nodding along to you then being like, absolutely. Wouldn't it be lovely to find, you know, to be in that preventative, preventative space? Um, and I don't have the answers at this moment in time, but yeah, it absolutely changed this moment in my life. You know, it was one of the darkest as I've, as I've outlined, but actually it completely shifted as I got better. I I grew inside me like this, and I think this is quite common, but this little spark of desire to want to, to really want to help. And I really, I just have this overriding feeling and over, you know, just overarching feeling of, I never want anyone to feel as, alone as I did and I know this isn't possible I know this is pie in the sky but it but it really does motivate me and drive me forward of I felt like such a failure and if I could help just one person feel like they are less of a failure and less alone and more likely to reach out and get support that is my motivational force I call it my north star it is my purpose it's what it is I'm sounding a bit grandiose now but like this really is my driving force it's it's it has changed my life so you often hear these stories of people getting to rock bottom and then it completely turning their life around and it occurred to me the other day that oh my gosh i have one of these stories this is this is my story so i i went back to trying to be a lawyer and that didn't really work out for a number of reasons mainly because perfectionism law is a brilliant, brilliant career for anybody who is a perfectionist. It, and it, and it mm. fed that and it was, it was wonderful and it, and it felt exactly where I should be and it was brilliant. But as soon as I started to try and untie some of those perfectionist knots that I'd got myself into, 
trying to then just put that back on temporarily to straight jacket myself back in as I walked through those glass and steel doors, that revolving door. I found it almost impossible. I just couldn't do it. Not to mention having a small person at home and still postnatal depression and all the rest of it. So then I, I, I really did pivot my life towards trying to talk about mental health, talk about maternal mental health, um, raise awareness, do the campaigning, do the writing, the speaking, all of the things that I do. And now I'm working for a perinatal mental health charity three days a week in a sort of, I'm doing air quotes, like a proper job, doing a, a fantastic project on the ground and with brilliant, brilliant people making a real difference to women's lives. I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to be in this position and to have a real focus and life purpose. It's wonderful. That is, I mean, that is so true that what you're talking about there before you catch yourself with your inner critic saying, oh, this is too grandiose. <laughs> when you were in the moment, you were talking about your purpose. That mm. is what makes us grow. And your story is so, so moving because it's very similar to other women I've supported mm -hmm. where they have found themselves in hardship and then had what we call post-traumatic growth mm. actually when it's like you know the metaphor of rising from the ashes mm. and all of that there is very true that there's an element of how it even shapes our brain that when we go through adversity and those who've, who've listened to this podcast before know that i've talked about it on, on other episodes as well that when we go through adversity and we find some meaning in it some purpose in it that we can pivot our lives so we can create more fulfillment again even mm. though we can't undo what we've been through and i'm sure you wouldn't wish your your story on your worst enemy that that level of darkness but it has shaped you mm. and has moved you away into a very different career and i asked you in the beginning before we recorded why are you coming on here because i had a feeling like this i just need to tap into your purpose i need to tap into your passion that shows up online on every single social media post on your campaigns like hashtag depression wears lippy these campaigns your passion is so clear and that comes from lived experience it doesn't come from well someone paying me a monthly salary <laughs> to do this this comes because you care yeah and that's where it shines through. And this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast as well, not just because of spreading this very important message of mental health awareness so that others, whoever is listening right now, if you're having a hard time, that it's okay to go and say to your GP, I don't think I feel okay. Mm. I think I'm struggling. I, I think I need some help. We don't even have to use these words, I don't think I'm coping, because that can be really, really hard for high striving people mm. to say. So even just saying, I think I need some help mm. or I think I need to talk to someone. Mm. So if anyone is listening to that, you know, you and I both on our missions have felt pleased that we've moved something, we've shifted something. Yeah. But even beyond that, beyond your mental health awareness, is that sense of actually, you know, we can also talk to people about their purpose. Mm. That even in serious matters like mental health, we can find our own purpose. We can find our own element of pausing and reflecting on how this has shaped us. Mm. So it's very powerful. So I'm very, very grateful that we're having this conversation. We've talked about, you know, you're you going to have to come back again and talk about <laughs> one very big thing you've got coming up that you're not really allowed to talk about. <laughs> Hint, it's a, it's a uh, something you can read. Um, <laughs> so we won't go into that too much, but... Um, we have to come back again, yeah. especially if we can try to get the, the listeners to come up with some questions of, of how you got through this. And you touched upon this already, mm -hmm. um, the, the CBT as in cognitive behavioral therapy yes. and medication. And I wanted to hear more about what helped you to recover if you still feel recovered or if you feel that this healing is still ongoing? Oh, it's such a good question. So I keep saying that to all of your questions. It's like, oh, you can tell that you think for a living, can't you? Um, I, I, 
I, I do think for a living and I get paid to think. Exactly. I love it. It's, it's brilliant. The best thing ever. It's brilliant. Um, and you're getting me to think now, which I love. Uh, it is a process. It, I don't think, I know that this is, is controversial to some people. People do think you can be fixed. And I do think there is, there is, there is recovery. And I do feel recovered from my postnatal illness. And I'll tell you when I felt it. And I felt it about a year ago. And that's probably, and I don't want to horrify anyone who's going through the throes of it right now. I I want to, I'll backtrack a little actually for that very, very reason. I started to feel better. Really, I started, I started to feel better almost immediately when I took my medication. But I very quickly realised that that was a bit of a sticking plaster, to be honest. I needed the medication. It was absolutely life-saving. I'm so glad that I did do it. I'd been really resistant to medication at other points in my life, but it felt like the right thing to do at that moment. And it absolutely, absolutely helped helped me. But it was at one point when I was feeling quite, uh, I don't know, trig- like, oh, I don't, I was gonna say trigger happy. I was feeling quite cocky. And I thought, oh, we should lower my dose. So obviously, with the help of my GP, we lowered my dose. And I, so I was still on medication. And I felt I gave it a while. I think it was about a couple of months, but I felt awful, really awful. Mm. And I realised at that moment that what the medication had been doing has been sticking a plaster over the problem. And it was at that point, and I'd done the CBT by this point, but I have to admit, again, I didn't really engage with the CBT all that well. In fact, I sort of stopped by the before the end of it, and I really cringe at this because I don't like being that person. But I found... And I don't know if it was my, the therapist that I was working with, but it was very, very homework heavy. It was very, it felt very, very onerous. It felt, I was in the deep fog of depression. And just, I mean, to be perfectly honest, just having a shower on a weekly basis was difficult. So trying to Mm. track my thoughts and stop my thoughts and do this homework while I have a small child that didn't stop screaming, didn't sleep, it all felt too much. It's something that I think I'd love to do now because it's super practical and it, and it and it's very up my alley. But at that moment in time, it didn't work for me. So what did start to work for me was when I had talk therapy. I, I found a, she was a counsellor, not a psychotherapist at that point in time, but a very experienced counsellor. She had a integrative but person-centred, humanistic sort of bent. And she really changed my life to be completely honest she she changed my opinion about therapy she changed she changed she changed everything and she actually was specialized in EMDR and I don't know if you've talked about EMDR on your podcast before but it's a it's a trauma therapy and we I was able to do that with her when I felt strong enough as well to look at some of my birth trauma to look at some of my past traumas look at some of the Mm. trauma that I had I'd sort of ended up with PTSD from my postnatal depression. So I was being very triggered by any alone time with my child, like to the point of having very scary panic attacks. If my husband just left the room, for example, because I thought I was going to become suicidal. I know that that sounds irrational, but that was what was happening. So I felt very, very lucky to be able to sort of have her care and very slowly heal so fast forward a few years and lots of therapy and I move from London to now I live in Bath and now I have a fantastic psychotherapist here in Bath and some of this, some of all this healing, healing journey has continued. But it was about a year ago and 
so uh, and sorry I should also say I have I have likened my postnatal depression recovery to a little bit like I don't know if you've ever sat on I don't know if you've been on a foreign holiday were back when those were things and you get there before dawn and maybe you're driving from the airport to your hotel and you slowly it's not an obvious sunrise but you slowly start to realize that the dark is permeating it like the light has started to to become brighter and before you know it you're you're in daylight it's day but there wasn't a single moment where it went from pitch black to daylight there was just this very slow gentle turning up the volume of or turning up the saturation of light in front of you and I see my postnatal depression recovery like that it was just a very very slow imperceptible I want to use the word march but not quite a march just this very slow very gentle journey I hate that phrase, but let's go with it, um, into the light from this dark place. However, this is the piece that I keep trying to get to and I keep, <laughs> keep wanting to go back. But it was about keep a year going, ago. You're doing I've said it three times now. It was about a year ago. I was driving with my husband. It was a Sunday morning. A little girl was in the back singing away to herself. We were driving along somewhere and I turned to him and I said, I feel normal. And he laughed, you know, he sort of did a, you're, you're not normal, huh? I was like, no, on a real bone or blood or physiological or mind level, there's something so bodily normal. I feel okay. And it was really, really bizarre. And I've had little blips since then. And, you know, like I say, I think the mental, mental, my mental health and my mental wellness is something that I, I have to keep an eye on. I have to keep digging into my toolkit of different things that I, I know help me. But that moment, I suddenly realized I was better and fully, fully better at that moment in time. But it is a journey and it's a process. So it, it does change. I'm sitting here in awe listening to you. You were saying that you're nodding along. I'm sitting here sort of gently smiling with actual tears in my Aww. eyes because it's it's so powerful, Joe. It's so similar to the experience the women I've guided mm-hmm. have, have told me that it's it's such a slow journey. Mm. It's not flicking a switch to to suddenly the room being bright. Mm. It's it's little bits chipping away. Mm. It was like digging a dent into a big dam. And it's, it's similar to my own journey of, which I don't share that often, it's um, like old age old sort of tabula rasa, you know, you should be a blank slate mm-hmm. as a psychologist, which thankfully we are moving away from, mm-hmm. but it's okay to admit that you've struggled in the past. And if anything, I think it makes me a damn good psychologist, mm-hmm. but to know what it feels like to be in the darkness. And I think for me, it was similar to that of the, the EMDR was the final piece yes. that, that lifted it, that, that the fog went away and I, oh, this is me. Yeah. I feel like myself again. And that uh, is like that. It's a very, very slow dawning um, of the light coming in, trickling through. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I hope that those listening feel, feel that this is a, a an image of hope, mm-hmm. that it doesn't have to all transform very quickly, that you know, to keep going. And what the therapy research shows us is that it's not this one therapy is the best one, it's what works for whom. Mm. That's the bit that we're still trying to figure out who responds better to CBT, who responds better to EMDR, who responds better to systemic therapy. All of these different therapy formats that are out there, what's going to work the best for whom? Mm. That's, you know, the million dollar question. 
And I think we sometimes, because it's an, not an exact science, it's about trialing mm. and um, knowing that it's also when it came in the journey for you. Mm. I've anecdotally heard this from a lot of women with postnatal depression that CBT, when given very early in the first few months or within the first year, was actually really difficult to mm. to connect with, to, to mm. take on board because, you know, you have such a long daily slog of things you're doing to, to care for a baby that's very difficult to do in very active treatment mm. at that point, mm. whereas counselling or psychotherapy or, you know, supportive counselling can be helpful as well mm. as a combination perhaps with medication so it will work for one person won't work for the next but what you're telling me there is also the powerful nature of how medication can mask the underlying cause mm. you know it can be a catalyst to help us address the cause if we if we allow it to if we're in the right space for that type of journey in therapy and it sounds like that just wasn't the right tool for you at that time cbt wasn't Mm-mm. the right timing now it might have been better but so many mums I talk to, just they just want space to talk and understand that they're not abnormal. Mm. They're not failing. Mm. They're doing the best they can. And through no fault of their own, their mind has given them all of this stuff. Mm. And some of the stuff that you told me already was some of these kind of skewed perceptions, some of these thoughts that through no fault of your own just popped in. Like, what if I'm just going to commit suicide? What if something will happen? Mm. You know, were there any other kind of thoughts like that that you that you experienced that you now can attribute to the depression, that it was the depression talking? Yeah, that I'd failed, this failure, that I was a really bad mother, that I couldn't cope, that I didn't know how to cope. And that's an easier one to look back on because I did cope. <laughs> um, mm, but, you know, you I... You doing it. Yeah, and I think... But I think some of these... It's, it's, it's hard to unpick, though, some of these thoughts that get amplified in your depression but sometimes are part of your core values of not Mm. feeling enough or not being enough and some of those can link right back to to childhood experiences and then becoming a mother yourself it flares all of that up again and it mixes it all up and it, it really yeah amplifies is a really good way of thinking about it of some of these things that are long buried or all things that you've found coping mechanisms for or careers that suit you because that or suit some of these like slightly um less healthy things around that you've um developed so these crutches are almost like they're knocked away in motherhood that these things of overworking throwing yourself Mm. in in the legal profession which you know is very suited to a kind of a a type a personality Mm. and i wanted to ask you about that Mm. as well of when you came into law Mm. and when you look back at it now knowing what you know about yourself you know your your traits or your personality type um how much of that you know do you think was your own individual standards you know your internal (laughs) pressure that you came with your expectations on yourself Mm. and how much was the external environment Mm. the pressure coming from the workplace around you that is that is I'm not going to say that is a good question but that is an excellent that is an excellent (laughs) question um it it's a combination I think but I think it is it's the uh the therapist speak of external locus and your internal locus of evaluation isn't it and I think your I think a lot of my external cues or formed my internal values um but it wasn't really it hmm, did it now no I was still very much in trying to please other people and I went into law 
I went into law because I knew that that would please my parents. I knew that that would would elevate me. I don't have a lot of self I have better self-esteem now, but back then I really didn't. And that was that felt like a bit of a hack of and it and it worked. People you tell people you're at a dinner party or you meet people in the street or even at uni you meet somebody in a club and they say what are you studying and you saying law i mean that instantly you see it absolutely instantly in people's eyes is a flicker of respect and you've suddenly it's a bit like medicine i think as well like you've suddenly changed in front of them even though you have done nothing and it was an instant way to make me feel better like i was a better person and i got that external validation it scratched that itch that i've 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 always wanted to people please I've this is this is my my upbringing has was focused like that then the career that I chose it's almost inevitable that I chose that career because that's all I knew and what I've done in later life sort of almost having the postnatal depression having my rock bottom moment having my pivot now doing what I do which couldn't actually be further from that it's allowed me to peel back those layers and really question who I am underneath and give myself permission to not pursue those sort of family set values that were in, hardwired into me, even internally into me as a child of this is what success looks like, this is what you as a person need to do to be worthy and worthy of love. I mean, I only, you know, I very, very frankly only got attention from my father if I was academically achieving and that was how I received love and to the point where something he said to me the other day really it really hammered home this point I remember when I was age seven and he I had I had been told on my school report or it said on my school report that I was average at maths and he was furious by the way I am average at maths I'm not good at maths at all um, and he was absolutely furious. And I remember being called in front of him, hauled in front of him, and him being so angry with me and so disappointed. And he said, you are not average at maths. You are not average anything. No daughter of mine is average. You're, you're not average. And whereas now as a parent, I can, I certainly can relate in some ways of, He's, he was trying to better me. He was trying to push me on. But the way that he said it was so accusatory and he, I felt so, in that moment, not understood, not seen, not heard. Well, he was very cross. It was, it was very accusatory. It felt like I wasn't seen. I wasn't heard. I was misunderstood. I remember just feeling this tiny little seven-year-old me thinking, but I am no good at maths and, or I am average at maths. I'm not great at maths. And why can't he understand that? And me being my grades, you know, me, almost that personification of internalizing my, my, my worth is my grade rather than who I actually was. And it was just always like that. So I, I in answer to your law question, yeah, it, it came from the outside but some of this have really has really embedded into me deeply in an internal way. And a lot of what I've 
what a, a lot of the work that I am now doing in therapy is unpicking what of you know which of those values I still hold as part of me and um, my new values and my new belief systems and sort of seeing what's underneath the masks you know having having a good look at it and having a good look at it in a way that is a bit scary but is really freeing um, because I think when you are so used to wearing masks and people pleasing and being a bit of a chameleon and being whatever other people want you to be it can feel a little bit you can you can feel very lost of who you actually are underneath and the feeling and the fear is that what is underneath isn't very good or nice or worthy or worthwhile or interesting or all of these things you feel they, there could be this emptiness there so yeah it's um that's why I said it's a great question because it is a great question because it is it's both internal external but it comes from external and I'm learning to now to go more with what my my core who Joe actually is and lead on in that way rather than what Joe was praised yes, for or punished exactly. for and not letting that be your not letting that be your guide mm. for how you want to show up in the world and I guess it makes sense that it came from external then become internal mm. and then when you came into another environment where I imagine that perfectionism was praised mm-hmm. um you know in the previous episodes I've, I've spoken with Mandiletto about how perfectionism is the only addiction we get praised for <laughs> uh, you know we actually get reinforced for doing it um and law I think having worked with many solicitors lawyers barristers over the years it's one of the professions where it's if it's not expected it's definitely uh, hailed as a successful strategy yeah. um so and it's not true it's simply not true it's a recipe for burnout yeah but I wonder about that you know the seven-year-old version mm. of you you know who's standing there in front of her father who's disappointed about average mm. and and it sounds like then average was equated to failure yes yeah yeah and if nobody's average, if everyone has to be above average, how does that curve work? You know, we can't all be above average because someone has to be average and someone has to be below average. Is that something you've taken with you into life as well and perhaps into motherhood? Yeah. That when I'm not above average, mm. I've failed. Yeah. And I would say it's not everyone needs to be above average. It's I need to be above average. Joe needs to be above average. And even yeah. within our family dynamic, my brother was very severely dyslexic and he didn't have to be anything other than what he was. And I almost had to make up for that. So I had to be excellent and I had to be perfect and I had to attain and almost took on both children's roles of that because then the pressure almost doubled. It was on me. Mm. and whatever my brother did and he's actually gone on to be hugely successful of all of the external metrics of success all, all the typical metrics of success and so yeah maybe the dad my dad was back- <laughs> backing the wrong horse and I don't mean that in a derogatory way I just mean my brother had it you know he he had it but maybe he did it because he wasn't he didn't have the pressure anyway that's a different story um that's, well, it's an interesting discussion, but I guess that's one maybe, maybe you say for your therapy, but yeah. it's a good one. I guess, I mean, it's very obvious to me that you've done a lot of self-reflection around your patterns, mm. where they've come from, how they have served you, how they got you to places, mm. you know, you got into law, you got, you kind of hit all of these metrics, but it was consistently driven 
by a self-worth that was hinged upon achievement, that was hinged upon praise and external validation from others mm-hmm. to feel good enough, to feel worthy. I had to hit these mm-hmm. markers. And then this is something we see a lot for perfectionistic or high-striving women who then enter motherhood mm. as a first-time mum, because you can't be good at something you've never done yeah, before. Yeah, but and mm, what is what is it what is it to be good mm, as a mum anyway? How are you a good mum? Yeah. So I guess that makes sense of why that was one of the precursors yes. into your depressive episode, mm. and also how that was even more manifested by the lack of social support. Yeah which is, we know, a very common thing in postnatal depression. Yeah, and I would just say on that perfectionism and motherhood thing, you know, it was never an excuse in my life before then. Not an excuse, that is the wrong word, but that's how I would have seen it. The fact I hadn't done something before wouldn't be an excuse to not be perfect at it. It would be you Mm. need to be as, or you need to be as good as you can damn near be. I just did mother. I also did motherhood to 110. I know there's no such thing as 110%, but I really pushed myself and I I lost my, I completely lost myself in that push. And yeah, I think also your, your, your very astute point about what is, (laughs) what is a perfect mother anyway, because is it a mother who does all of the stuff? No, because then that's going to be a burnt out mother. Or is it a mother who pretends that it's all wonderful because we know that that's not true either. So it's working out what that actually looks like. And and there's the there's the the very well used phrase, but I like it, a good enough mother. And it's something that my therapist drummed into me in those days of like, Joe, you can just be a good enough mother, just a good enough mother. And as I was beating myself up about not always feeding her, I don't know organic mush or not hand making this or not whatever whatever I was whatever I was guilting myself about she she would always trot out the phrase you're being you're 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 good enough you're doing enough yeah Mm. yeah we actually know that a good enough mother is more helpful Mm. for your child's development than the so quote no quote unquote perfect Mm. mother because a you are burnt out you're struggling too much in the process you pay a high price and b what standard do you set for your child if you never show imperfections if you never show flaws or failures or you know like fuck it it's friday let's have fish fingers (laughs) um I think that's sort of, and that for me, I used to throw the, the phrase fuck it because it's mm. almost like that fuck it moment where you think, fuck it, let, let it go. Mm. Uh, it is okay. Mm. You know, I'm not going to be going from the all to the nothing because I let go of five to 10% of my standards. Yeah. And that's the bit that I often teach women that actually, what could you gain back yes. if you dropped your standard five to 10%? Yes. It doesn't mean you're now going to be, you know, not giving a, a toss about your children's well-being. You are still driven by those values, yeah. but you're showing up in a more sustainable way. Exactly that. And that was that was something that I, it, it took, it took some mental rejigging in my head, like some bit of gymnastics in my head of, of, of realizing that actually I benefit. And a really good example was I, I didn't let and this is, this I suppose is quite normal, but I didn't, well, I don't know, actually. I didn't let my little person see any television at all um, in her first year and actually even beyond. And I remember being very offended when I was at somebody's house and they put the television on and I was like, oh, get it away from her eyes. It's going to burn her. Like it was going to, like it was going to do something really awful to her. And I remember mm. my therapist saying, there are hugely educational things on the television for kids and development you're not sticking her in front of it all day 
and think what you would get back. You're not leaving her. She, you can't leave her in a room. Like, she's not leavable. Um, so you'd be with her. But think what you would get back mentally. Just We're just having, like, 20 minutes of zoning out. You don't... You, mm. she, and she's going to get something from it. It's not, it's not going to kill her. It's not going to hurt her. It's, you know, it yeah. actually... You know, God forbid, it actually might do something beneficial as well. And it, it takes... I know this sounds so, so silly now that I'm saying it out loud. And also given you don't know our family dynamic, but how much screen time she now gets at age almost six, um, how very, very different, very, very different my attitude has become on that. Um, and it is those fuck it moments. And, and also I think another thing, and this is slightly diverging, but I, I, I want to bring it in. I really want her to see me make mistakes and not be perfect because of exactly this. And so I'll sometimes sort of, if we're drawing together, I, I'm quite artistic and I could make a circle perfect, but I'm like, no, 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 I, I, I'm going to do it all squiggly and her see, or drop the paint or do something because I want to see her yes. to show, I want to show her that it doesn't all need to be neat and it doesn't all need to be perfect. And there's, there's beauty still in that paint splodge that's just happened. And let's talk about that or like, what's her favorite bit of this bit and what's her, you know, and, and really, because she'll say, oh, no, I don't like this picture at all. And I'm like, oh, come on, you must like something. What do you like? Over, you know, is there a nice color or is there a nice shape? And then she'll find things in her, what she's done that she really likes. But also in that emotional sense of if we have a, you know, if I shout at her or get angry, it's not then beating myself up about that, but then going back and saying that wasn't about you, that was about mummy. And mummy was cross because mummy this and not mitigating and not saying because you did this, just trying to normalize all the emotions for her that these these she will get angry in her life and she will get upset and like tears are tears are okay and we can feel okay Mm. about these things and seeing mummy cry occasionally as well that's okay that's okay and all these things are okay it's how we deal with them afterwards and how we I think is it Philippa Perry who talks about the rupture and the repair and ruptures happen all the time especially in families and we're not perfect people, are we? But it's the repair and how we repair them. And we're teaching them all the time with all these tiny little things that we're doing. So um, that was a little bit of a divergence off into it. <laughs> no, but I think it, it touches into what our final wrap-up mm. bit is of this session, which is actually that permission mm. of what you want to give as a permission or something you want to take off, a pressure you want to take off the listeners. It sounds like you've given them loads of ideas around softening rules softening shoulds taking away some of these these musts for for motherhood and and doing less of the all or nothing mm. and finding some sort of gray scales middle ground but is there anything else that you have as a as a tangible takeaway to give the listeners yeah that's a hard one i think slowing down is always really helpful and, and in in a lot of senses i mean that so if you feel what well, we've just been talking about if you have like a heated discussion with your child or maybe even your partner or maybe somebody else sort of trying to slow down even if it's just your breathing but the pace of the conversation flow but starting with your breathing I found really slowing myself down in those moments where I'm getting anxious or stressed out or cross or whatever that's really really I found that really helpful just to not even going into a mindful moment, that would be lovely if we could do, all do that all the time on demand, but just trying to slow the pace of a conversation or just trying to slow my breath. And slowing down generally, not 
not try I do a thing called slow Mondays on on Instagram where I just try and do Mondays that little bit slower because weekends particularly as a, with a family weekends can be completely hectic and very draining so just trying even though I work but just trying to have a little bit more of a tea break or going for a walk on a Monday and not trying to overachieve at any point but particularly at the start of the week I think it sets me mm. off on the wrong foot and and I find it really unhelpful. So that's really beautiful because that gives them two lovely permissions oh. to hold on to. The permission to slow down, slow down your breathing, your speak, speaking, and also the permission to find recovery. Mm. Uh, you know, giving yourself pockets of rest after a long weekend. So yeah. thank you so much, Joe. We could talk for a very long time, <laughs> I'm sure. And we've we've gone to both dark places and light places. And I feel like I've definitely found a kindred spirit mm. in our journey. So Thank you no, so thank much for coming you. on. And you spoke about Instagram. What you know, where can people find you on Instagram? What's your handle? Okay, I have two Instagram handles. One is Therapy is Magic and the other one is Joe and then two underscores, love and then two underscores. Unfortunately, my name is too popular and people people wanted Joe Love. Um I'm not convinced mm. there's actually that many Joe Loves out there, but they just They've stolen the handle from me. So I've got some ugly underscores in there. I feel your pain. <laughs> I feel your pain. There's, there's oddly lots of Michaela Thomases yeah. as well. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for coming no, on to the show. No, thank you for having me. We'll, we'll keep in touch and have you back on again soon. Oh, that would be lovely. Thank you. This was such a beautiful episode. I really felt that Joe and I connected over these experiences, both on her side of having experienced it and me having guided a lot of women who have had a very similar journey. So please do not think by any means that this is an experience that's out of the ordinary. This is a very common journey that I hear for women who have been putting too much pressure on themselves to be perfect mums, feeling really bad about who they are, experiencing mum guilt, mum shame, And it's not just for mums, it's for anyone who is experiencing parenthood, so that's including dads as well. If you're coming into parenthood with the expectation to be perfect, you will have a rude awakening and you will realise that those crutches that you were having throughout your pre-parenthood life may quickly be kicked away. Maybe you were working very hard during the week And then you take the weekend to blow off steam or to relax and recover. And then you go back into work with the same attitude on a Monday. Parenthood takes that away. We're struggling to then find enough rest and recovery because family life is very hectic, even on the weekend, as Joe mentioned. So if you think, based on what you've heard, the symptoms around postnatal depression, the thoughts, the feelings that Joe described, if you think this relates to you, please turn to the links in the show notes, both for times of crisis, but also for ongoing support. So please, as always, do take care of yourself. So if you found this episode helpful, you might find it also helpful to download a checklist that I've put together of signs of overwhelm, signs of needing to take a break before you break. So you can go to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. That's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm.
This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.